helping a community find itself, its purpose, its next big goal, what it wants to be when it grows up is so important. And as we do that, we build strong counties and regions and states. Welcome to Off the Record, a podcast featuring leaders on IBJ Media's Indiana 250 list. I'm Nate Feltman, CEO of IBJ Media, which publishes the Indiana 250, a list of the most influential business people in the state. Today, I'm joined by former Indiana Lieutenant Governor Sue Elsperman, who became the first woman to lead Ivy Tech Community College in 2016, the nation's largest single accredited statewide community college system. Sue has been on the job for almost eight years, accepting the top job at Ivy Tech after one term in the Indiana House of Representatives and three years as Lieutenant Governor under Governor Mike Pence. Taking over at Ivy Tech marked a return to higher education for Sue, who is founding director of the Center for Applied Research and Economic Development at the University of Southern Indiana, where she also taught. In that role and almost every other she has held, Sue has been involved in creating growth opportunities, helping small businesses, and building communities through economic development and job creation. As Lieutenant Governor, she was Vice Chair of the Indiana Career Council, which is tasked with aligning Indiana's education and workforce development systems with the needs of employers. It was in that role that Sue became acutely aware of Ivy Tech's importance to our state, both in its potential to upscale Hoosiers and the key role it plays in moving our state forward economically. Leading Ivy Tech was too good an opportunity to pass up in 2016 after stepping down as Lieutenant Governor toward the end of her term, and Sue has been leading Ivy Tech to new heights ever since. Sue graduated from Purdue with a Bachelor of Science in Industrial Engineering and earned a PhD and MS from the University of Louisville in Industrial Engineering and early in her career spent time with major Fortune 500 companies. She serves on the boards of One America, OFS, German American Bank Corp, and the Central Indiana Corporate Partnership. Here's our conversation. Sue, welcome to the Indiana 250 Podcast. Thanks for having me, Nate. Well, Sue, your career is really at the intersection of public service, higher education, and workforce and economic development, all of which are critical to our state's future. So I can't wait to hear all that you have to tell us here today on the Indiana 250 Podcast. But first, I want to talk a little bit about how you arrived at this interesting intersection. You're from a small town in southern Indiana, and your dad was a business owner. Tell us how your upbringing in southern Indiana influenced your career. It was a great upbringing, little town of Ferdinand, about 2,200 people in Du Bois County. Dad had a little jewelry store on Main Street, and you know you're in a small town because it wasn't just a jewelry store. It was a jewelry and gents shop, so it was jewelry and men's clothing because, you know, he had to support a family of eight out of that business, and so we did both, but he was a jeweler and a watch repairman. Uh, his three daughters, there were three boys, three girls. The three girls got to work in the jewelry store. So from age 14 on, it was every night after school, Saturdays, summers, snow days, anytime we were there. And a great way to learn business. I think I learned everything, all the basics from customer service to sales to doing the books for him and running it when they were on vacation and it really helped me understand how when you think about business school, you study concepts, but when you really get to do them on a small scale, you learn in a different way. So I'm very thankful for the time I had with dad. So you spent a lot of your early career as a problem solver for big businesses after graduating from Purdue with a degree in industrial engineering. 
You worked for the likes of Frito-Lay and Michelin Tire. What did you do at those companies and how did those private sector jobs eventually lead you to public service? I knew as I became an engineer, I loved the problem solving and making things better. And that's what IEs do. So that's what I did at Michelin, you know, process improvement. And when I got to Frito-Lay, they made you run the business. So I made potato chips. I supervised 4,000 pounds of potato chips an hour coming out of that fryer in the Dallas plant, which was their largest plant at the time. And then I ran third shift shipping, first female supervisor to do that. That was learned how I can cube a truck. So if you ever need a trailer cubed, I know how to do that. Great experiences. And then I say I really grew up at Frito-Lay when I became a corporate IE, where at Frito-Lay, they used their IEs to do really big things and in a very entrepreneurial way. So we had a process improvement program that saved half a billion dollars in a $2 billion company over five years. And it was all process improvement based on creative problem solving, which was a way of engaging people frontline all the way through C-suite engineers and R&D as well on problems and how we might, how might we is the favorite word I bring away from that, but teaching people creative thinking skills, how to formulate problems better, how to solve them better, and then implement them. And so I became a facilitator, a trainer, and then an internal consultant for Frito-Lay. So that's really where I think I got to hone my problem solving because the big aha was most problems don't have a single right answer. They have many answers. And how do you get to good solutions? And that's what I learned at Frito-Lay. And then you left Frito-Lay in 1986 to return to Indiana, starting your own firm, Elsperman & Associates, a consulting company. How did you decide to get into that <laughs> There was something called a baby. Uh, <laughs> my husband and I had a child uh, down in Dallas, and he had an opportunity to come back to Evansville, which was his hometown, very close to, to where I grew up in Ferdinand. And we made the decision to, like many Hoosiers, to come back to Indiana. And at that time, I didn't know exactly what I was going to do. But Frito-Lay said, hey, we have 40 plants across the country. Would love for you to keep doing this training and facilitating you've been doing, but we don't need you full time. At the same time, their consultant, Dr. Min Bassiter, who developed the Simplex creative problem solving process said, well, I'm not ready to hire anybody full time, but would you like to help me as a consultant? So really at age 26, I had an instant consulting practice with two really good clients. And then the next 20 years was about building that practice on my own. But loved that opportunity of working with not just Frito-Lay, but all the PepsiCo companies. And then all of Minbassador's clients across North America. He was out of Toronto, Canada, where Zach Eady's from, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so just a you have to plug throw that for in there, Purdue. right? As a boilermaker, right? Um, but it was a great way to really get out and build, learn from those that I knew well, but then to go out and develop my own clients as well. Did you always know that you'd come back to Indiana? Was that the thinking all along, or or did it surprise you once you uh, left the state how much you missed it? So I'm one of six. I am one of two that came back to Indiana, but I probably didn't think I would, and I'm glad, so glad. That I did, and I think many Hoosiers growing up in the late 70s, early 80s, the market wasn't good here. And our parents all said, go away and do big things. So we all did. And it's been a minority who have come back. And boy, I'm not making that mistake with my own kids. Like, you know, we want you here. But at the time, it made sense. It made sense and uh, couldn't be happier to have come back. 
Yeah, I had the same experience. I I decided to leave. I kind of wanted to explore the world and and lived you know elsewhere abroad and and then in Chicago. But I kind of surprised myself. I wanted to come back, especially when I was thinking about a family and and future. So I can identify with that. So then you end up being a, the founder of the Center for Applied Research and Economic Development at the University of Southern Indiana. Tell us a little bit how that came about and, and your experience there. So a few years into consulting, I knew if I was going to stay in that field, I needed to know more. It is kind of hard if you're 26 or 28 knocking on the door of a CEO and getting in to convince them that you can help them. So the PhD was really important for me to become the best I could in my field And as I completed that PhD, I thought, oh, I'd really like to go into higher ed at some point. I'd never really thought about that before. So when the opportunity came in 2006 to join the University of Southern Indiana, which I knew well from being in Evansville and working with lots of people around that organization and even consulting with USI at times, I thought it would be a really great opportunity. It used my skills, which were facilitating, bringing people together, problem solving, but The bonus was I had 600 faculty members that I could treat as my consultants on these projects to help Southwest Indiana businesses, organizations, nonprofit, government do better, solve problems. And it was the most fun job just having this great, great institution behind me to go out and work on problems like I-69, which was coming to Indiana at that time and How do we make the best outcome of the exits that would be coming off those ramps? And with Habitat for Humanity, how could we find out how much impact that was having? And all kinds of building a new jail in Vanderburg County. So just lots of opportunities to engage faculty, students, and staff to solve problems in Southwest Indiana. Sounds like an incredible experience. So you're you're working at USI, and somehow you you get the bug for politics, and, <laughs> well, and decide to to run for state rep. How did how did that come about? Okay, to be clear, I never got the bug for politics, but I was doing one of those projects was helping then Lieutenant Governor Becky Skillman on a rural strategic plan, and as I did that work across Indiana, I realized, wow. We've got some challenges here. And I just off just said something to a colleague of mine from the Office of Community and Rural Affairs, Okra. I said, we've got problems. We need to do something. And she looked at me and she said, you need to go through the Luger series. Well, the Luger series, which I knew nothing about, was a program for women to get engaged with public service. And I did want to know how do you make government work well? Because now I was working with government in a way as an engineer I never expected to. So I went through the Luger series and at the end of that got a phone call to ask me to run. And I just, I didn't even know what to say because that had we, never been on my that, list. Who that person uh, that came was? from the, the Senate. It was a Senate first. And I said, oh, no, 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 I've not run for anything since high school student council. But I did go home and said, I know Mark Mesmer, or I knew of him. He was, at that point, Representative Mark Mesmer. I'm just going to call him up and see if I can have lunch with him. And, of course, I learned more about, and by the way, Mark did it right. He runs a wonderful campaign. He will make, it's only not my decision, but voters' decisions. But, you know, as he's running for Congress, he's just a great 
campaigner and professional and great public servant. So I talked to him and then pretty soon I got a call from the House, which at that time, Governor Daniels did not have the majority in the House. And that was very important to him. So I had to think about it a lot, pray about it a lot. And at the end of the summer, I said, look, if not me, then who? This is something I can do. We had empty nested at that point. So it really was a time if I could make a difference, I should try. Didn't think I would win, but I would at least try. Didn't think you would win part. You were running against a seven-term incumbent, if I have that right. Which yes. So, so it, it must have felt like an uphill battle to unseat somebody who had been there a long time. I mean, I honestly never thought I was going to win, but we we put together a great team. And I think that's what you learn. If you've run a business, you know, you treat a campaign like a business. You put a great team together and then together and you knock on a lot of doors. And then my belief is that when you're running for office, it's not about your opponent. I don't. And I like Russ Stowell. He's a wonderful person. Didn't use his name in the campaign at all. Very politically civil, which is important to me coming from the background I did with problem solving. But it was really important that as I would knock on doors, it's telling people who you are, what you've done and what you're going to do. And that's really it's a job interview, right? You're, you're interviewing with 65,000 Hoosiers for that job. And at the end of the day, when we won, it was by far the biggest upset in the state of Indiana that evening because I was in a Democrat leaning district. It was seven points. Democrat. But, you know, I was thankful that both Democrats and Republicans were willing to support me to do this work. And you were there for two years. Two years. And then, and then you get pulled in another direction. I tell you what, that was crazy. <laughs> so so you get pulled in and to, to run for lieutenant governor. Right. With uh, then governor candidate Mike Pence. And uh, how did that come about? Who makes that stuff up? I mean, it. Uh, I, I will tell the true story. When I got the call from Congressman Pence's campaign side, Bill Smith, on my driving home on a Friday night and asked if I would be interested in being vetted for lieutenant governor, I was very polite and said, oh, thank you. I'm honored you would ask and let me think about and pray about it over the weekend. I'll get back with you. And when I got home, the first thing I did was Google his name to make sure that that was not a joke. Right. It was April. <laughs> Could have been an April Fool's. But it was just truly honored to have the opportunity to serve with Governor Pence, as we know, Vice President Pence. Wonderful opportunity. How do you say no? But most importantly, I wish more people had the honor of getting to serve 6.7 million Hoosiers in the role. Indiana has a very significant role of lieutenant governor overseeing, I think I had seven state agencies, president of the Senate, and it was truly an honor to be in that role. When you look back at your two years in the state house and then as lieutenant governor for another three, is there one or two highlights that stick out in your mind? I know that you've had a lot, I'm sure, but is there something that you're most proud of? Well, I'll do one from each. From my two years as state rep, right to work had to be the biggest thing. So Speaker Bosma was shocked when I offered, when I said I wanted to serve on the labor pensions committee and because no one wants to be on labor. It's not a popular committee. But I said, you know, understand, I've worked in right-to-work states, non-right-to-work states. I've worked with unions when there weren't. And and that I had a strong background as it related to labor. Didn't know if we would deal with right-to-work. But on the second year when we did, decided to get heavily involved in it because I understood 
what it was, how it worked, how it benefits employees. And as we know, how it attracts businesses to Indiana. That was a very tumultuous time to be, you know, a lot of threats, lots of angry calls, messages, the protests at the state house. It was pretty exhausting. At the end of it, after we'd passed it, it was Super Bowl weekend, right? It was that week going into Super Bowl. I was just so exhausted. I was like, I don't even know if I'm going to run again. But if you say what policy changed the trajectory of Indiana as it relates to economic development, no doubt we were not on the list as companies were looking to expand. It was so important. And it's the right thing by employees, by Hoosiers. So I say that now Ivy Tech, we're proud of the work we do with the building trades and many, many great partnerships with our unions and right to work is still the right policy. So that was in my... And I'll just interrupt you before you go to the second example of your highlight, but I'll interrupt you to say, I know what you said is 100% true because I was serving as Secretary of Commerce and I, during the first term before right to work passed, and there is no doubt what you said is true. We were not on certain companies list. Site selectors would just rule us out because we weren't right to work. So thank you for getting that done because it has made a huge difference in economic development. You know, when I was at Frito-Lay in Dallas, it was a union facility in a right-to-work state. My best friend as a supervisor was my union steward, who we together worked in a way that I had not seen when I was in Michigan in a non-right-to-work state, and at that time, a very strong and and not as collaborative. It was a very collaborative relationship. And so I, I brought lots with me to that. And anyway, you're right in terms of the economic development. As lieutenant governor... There's a hundred things, but maybe the single would be doing the 92-county tour. I committed after my first year that I would visit all the counties, wanted to meet with local elected leaders, also wanted to meet with business people, and I was Secretary of Agriculture, also our ag leaders. And those visits talk about a lesson you could never get in a book, understanding the difference in each of our counties, large and small. I still today have the big map that's about eight feet tall that has pictures of all those 92 counties, and I just bring back such amazing memories. And that is probably what cemented Ivy Tech. That's neat. Well, that's what I want to turn to next is Ivy Tech and and, uh, what you've been doing the last eight years leading that institution with 40 locations. I don't think a lot of Hoosiers realize that uh, 40 locations across 19 campuses enrolling 180,000 plus 191 as of this morning. It's uh, unbelievable. That's that's, uh, quite a responsibility. And uh, we know that Ivy Tech uh, arguably makes the maybe the biggest impact in terms of workforce development and uh, talent development in our state, especially at a time when employers are craving more and and we're landing more economic development opportunities. So we need more people that have skilled up. And it's unique. The, The college is unique among if you look around the country. Tell us why Ivy Tech is unique when you compare it to other community college systems. Yeah. So Ivy Tech, that singly accredited, that is the most important part. So we have 19 campuses and the programs are the same. So if you start as a nurse in Fort Wayne and then your family moves to Indianapolis or Evansville, that nursing program is the same there. Our campuses don't compete. They are working together to ensure Hoosiers have those high-value careers. Employers, think about the hospitals who know if I'm IU Health and they're located in how many counties across Indiana, 
that nurse from Ivy Tech is going to have the same education no matter where you got them. So that is so unusual. And that plays out in cybersecurity. It plays out in business. It plays out in every other major. So that singly accredited is is so important because as we attract these companies, so sitting down, I can remember being with Governor Holcomb when we were recruiting Samsung in Kokomo. And I could say to the CEO of Samsung, yes, of course, you will have the full attention of this Kokomo campus. However, if the demand is larger than this, we have Lafayette, we have Anderson, we have Indianapolis, and we will give you as many campuses and programs to develop the workforce that you need. Imagine when you were back in that role, if you had said that, how that might have changed minds. I We haven't really led with that, with Ivy Tech, but that is, in fact, how we're designed to do big things at scale. And so that is really helping give the IEDC a new quiver in there as they go out and attract businesses, but also for our employers like Eli Lilly to be able to not just be limited to one campus and having the biotech or the biopharma program they need, but also being able to expand that to Bloomington and Terre Haute or Columbus, whoever we need, or soon to be with LEAP in Lafayette. So we are committed, and that's what that single accreditation allows you to do. Now, we're one of two in the country that are singly accredited. Other communities, because we're funded from the state primarily, tuition being the other major form of revenue, most places, it's a triad, it's the state, local dollars, and then tuition. So that makes it now the locals want to have more say in their local community college. We really look at the whole state, and then we're able to make sure that we're serving the right programs in each community focused just exactly to align with workforce. It's pretty amazing because it wasn't that way back in 2005 when I was working with Mitch Daniels and to to now see these massive economic development projects and to see Ivy Tech right alongside, as you mentioned, the Lilly plant in Lebanon. And I I know there's a new program. uh, Maybe it's maybe it's a little bit old, old now news, but a grant program called the Lilly Scholars Program that's training in the pharmaceutical manufacturing area that Ivy Tech is working very closely with Lilly. So for young people that want to get into that area and plug into some of these new opportunities that are coming to our state, what what's the best way for them to do that? What advice do you have to young people who want to say, you know, get involved with the new jobs that are coming? With the Lilly Scholars, we're working with many high schools right here in central Indiana to give them that opportunity to be scholarshiped, if you will, as if they will pursue some some short list of career paths, including biopharma, including industrial maintenance, robotics, that they don't have to even commit to Eli Lilly. It is to attract more talent into the pipeline. So yes, come see us on our campuses and we will try to uh, get those individuals engaged. It's also that 15 million also upskills their workforce. Our commitment is a thousand person pipeline. So think about that, how That's transformational and the great opportunities that it gives Hoosiers. So we're co-branding, co-marketing, 
that across central Indiana. We hope it becomes the model that other great companies in Indiana will use as well because we have to do all we can to attract people in to be upskilled. And sometimes Ivy Tech can't say, oh, just get this degree or this credential and you'll get a great job. It's so much better when the employer is at our side, like Eli Lilly is doing to help us recruit traditional age students, but also adults back in to upskill. You've also got a program you announced fairly recently called Green to Gold in a partnership with Purdue. Tell our listeners a little bit about how that works. That one's a little close to my heart being a Purdue engineer, but it is about helping Purdue have ever more Hoosiers in their engineering program and those who will stay in our community. So it came to life because of the IUPUI separation of IU Indy and Purdue in Indianapolis. We had a really an orphan program in Columbus, which was an engineering program offered by IUPUC. Purdue asked if we would take that on with them, and it'll be the first of a number that will help us really co-develop engineers in those communities. So they will do the first two years at Ivy Tech, but it will be co-enrollment, co-recruitment, co-enrollment, and then think about the co-ops and internships that will start in Columbus with great employers there. But even as those students go on to Purdue, they will continue to co-op and intern with those employers. We will also have Purdue faculty teaching some of our courses, some of the the 100, 200 level courses in those first two years. So those students will know they're capable of doing the work at Purdue. I am excited when I think about some of our both rural and urban schools where students may not come out with the calculus, with the STEM background that a Purdue is going to require if you're going to try to get in at West Lafayette or Indianapolis. We can help. We can have a small cohort We have the faculty who are, there are no TAs in our classrooms. These are professional faculty. They'll work with those students to make sure they're ready to go on and get a world-class engineering degree at Purdue. And we hope the vast majority will stay right here. 93% of our students do stay here. So our hope is that we will create a great talent pipeline to great engineers, great Purdue engineers who will stay right here in Indiana. Sounds like a great opportunity uh, in terms of keeping more talent in our state and uh, a way for, like you said, kids that maybe didn't get a lot of STEM in high school, but then can come to Ivy Tech, spend a couple of years and go to world-class engineering program. So it's uh, congratulations on getting that done. Well, congratulations and thank you to President Meng Chang and the Dean of Engineering at Purdue. It, It really has been a great partnership. And look, if we each do what we can do best, which what Ivy Tech has is scale in all those communities, you know, we serve 90,000 high school students in our dual credit, dual enrollment. It's really incredible. So how do we use what we're good at to help support some of our great four-year and research institutions in Indiana? I know in terms of other fields, you mentioned nursing earlier. I know you've had a, I think, I think Ivy Tech is educating more nurses than any other school in, in Indiana. Tell, I mean, of course, we went through the pandemic and that we had a shortage. How did that go? And uh, tell us kind of where the, the state of the program is today. We were already, I didn't know, never had really looked. But when we looked, we realized we were already in 2022, the largest nursing program in the country, graduating over 1,300 ASN 
registered nurses. They'll take the same NCLEX that a four-year nurse will take, all the same clinicals. But the pandemic had happened and we were so short on nurses. So we asked internally if money weren't an issue, how much could we expand? And that number came back as 600. So I reached out to a few hospital CEOs that you know and said, if we could expand, would you want us to do this? And they said, oh my gosh, that's what a gift. So they brought us, Dennis Murphy's particularly brought us before the hospital association. And in short order, in a matter of a couple of weeks, they had committed to support the expansion, which overall has been over $20 million raised to expand the labs to do this work. We had a bill that went through that we all supported called Nursing Indiana Back to Health, which adjusted some of the rules so we could grow faster. And I am so pleased to tell you that today we have, this spring, we'll have exceeded the 600. We think we're going to exceed, we're going to get to about 800. So we'll be over 2,000 ASN registered nurses finishing a year. Again, vast majority staying right here in Indiana. Most of them will go on and get their BSN, which that's wonderful, but often their employer will pay for it. So for just a little over $10,000, these students are having a career that is just incredible, and we know how important. Nurses, I believe, now are the most respected profession out there. And our job, oh, in the midst of that expansion, we improved our NCLEX pass rates by 7%. So over 90% of our nurses pass the first time. So listen, if you want to work hard, work with nursing faculty. They will not let you out of there without learning everything you need to know to be a great nurse. So you also oversee the Ivy Tech Foundation, which I understand is the largest, maybe the largest community foundation, college foundation in the nation. What does the foundation do? And tell us a little bit about their work. It's so important. I mean, we're grateful for about a quarter of a billion dollar investment the state makes in Ivy Tech every year to to provide kind of the basics of the system. And then tuition, we try to keep tuition very affordable. But the students we serve often come from the most disadvantaged, first-generation, low-income. So our foundation, the majority of what they raise funds for is scholarships, and I'll call emergency aid, wraparound services, you know, have a flat tire, need some housing assistance, or mental health services, all the things that hit these first-generation, mostly working learners out there. So we've raised $340 million in our first ever statewide capital campaign, five-year campaign. Our goal was 285 and just couldn't even be more proud of and thankful for the businesses and the foundations and the donors who have come alongside us. But it really is a mission of helping Hoosiers skill up, have better lives, come into build and grow our communities. So that foundation's done really good work. And, and President Courtney Roberts of the foundation is doing a tremendous job. Our campuses each have their own foundation teams. And we're just thankful to have this amount of support for the work we do. But it does allow us to do things that we just couldn't do with the good funding of the state and the tuition dollars we receive. Let's take a quick break. This is Off the Record Podcast. Get caught up on the state's top business news every business day with the Inside Indiana Business Radio On Demand podcast. Available now at InsideIndianaBusiness.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Welcome back to Off the Record Podcast. I'm Nate Feltman, CEO of IBJ Media, and I'm talking with Sue Elsperman, president of Ivy Tech Community College. So as we talked about, you've had a very diverse career working for Fortune 500 companies, running your own consulting business, being part of the legislature, and then an executive branch as lieutenant governor, and now working in academia, leading one of the largest community colleges in the country. As you look back, is there one or two or maybe more role models that you say, gosh, I needed that person really helped me think about uh, you know where I was going and how to be a leader? I was so blessed to work around a lot of good people. So you, you heard me mention a Dr. Min Bassador who, you know, helped me in the early days become this consultant, which I wouldn't have known how to do. Senator Luger, you know, when I went into politics, he was the one I, I cried on his shoulder more than a couple times, uh, when I, you know, politics isn't always pretty. And, uh, I'd say like this, it's gotta be better than this. And so we would talk through that and he was just a great model of public service. So if I could ever have the best model, that was, that was him. And then the other interesting person who has just played an ever bigger role in my life is Sister Kathy Huber. So Ferdinand is home to one of the largest Benedictine monasteries in the country. And I, for, from those years of consulting, I worked with the sisters for more than 30 years, strategic planning and their capital campaigns and, and helping up there. But their prioress, Sister Kathy Huber, was just a special person. She, when I was working on my dissertation, it took me a long time to finish it while I was consulting and having a second child and all those things. And she would say, now, how's that dissertation coming? I'd say, well, you know, it's a, if you need a place, a quiet place to come, we've got offices. And she would just nudge me. And she's been my spiritual director through my years of public service. And even just saw her last weekend as she did a Lenten workshop. And you know, there's people who keep you centered in the world. And yes, I have a wonderful husband and he, he does that too. But Sister Kathy is special. She, she tells me the truth and she asks me tough questions. And <laughs> right. so, we all need that. yeah, so I, I've been very blessed. So you've had the opportunity to work earlier in your career in places like Texas and South Carolina. And of course, you traveled the country and the world as Lieutenant Governor. We're always trying to learn from our Indiana 250 guests. In that vein, what's one big idea to make Indiana a better place to live or start a business or grow a company? Well, I think about when I lived in Texas, you know, everything's bigger in Texas. So they would try anything in Texas and they would do it at a big scale. So when I think about Indiana, when I was lieutenant governor, Becky Skillman had started a program called Stellar, which really grew our communities. That led to then regional cities led to Ready. Uh, and now ready 2.0. I come back to, I believe that Stellar, which I believe is being reinitiated, Stellar Communities is important because I believe strong communities grow strong counties, grow strong regions, grow strong states. And, you know, when you're in poverty, you don't have the wherewithal to be a good partner in bigger things because you want to take versus give. When you're healthy, you're happy to give, and it's an abundance mentality. Stellar Communities is an incredible program because it brings communities, small communities, be it Huntingburg, or be it other, you know, I'm thinking of the, the communities that we had when I was lieutenant governor. That program was transformational to many small communities, and I'm excited that we're restarting it and would hope that we might scale that like we're doing with Ready because Helping a community find itself, its purpose, its next 
big goal, what it wants to be when it grows up is so important. And as we do that, we build strong counties and regions and states. So that's maybe what I would contribute. Continuing with um, ideas for our audience in terms of learning some new things, with all the experiences you've had, are there any leadership lessons that uh, you could maybe tell our audience about that uh, along the way, maybe you picked up from somebody else, maybe it was Senator Luger, maybe it was somebody else along the way? I think, and this came actually from One America, where I serve on their board. They see leadership at three levels. One is leadership of self, leadership of a team, leadership of an organization. And I'd say, learn how to lead yourself, that self-discipline, to be the role model, be willing to be the role model, because every level of leadership you go up from there, people are watching. And you don't know how important that is. So 20 years of being a consultant, mostly by myself, but facilitating other things helped me be solid in me. Like, I'm accountable. I have to do this. There's no one else to make that happen. If you've owned a business, you know that. So I think that is something that we sometimes forget about, that we all started as leading ourselves first. And I hope that young people or young and career folks who are listening to this would think about that. Thank you. So, Sue, we've made it to Off the Record Speed Round, where we give you some questions and you try to give us as, as, as best you can some brief responses. So, you ready to go? <laughs> we'll try. <laughs> okay. Favorite movie? Sound of Music. Favorite place to vacation? Rome. Favorite musical artist? Don't have one. What's the first thing you do in the morning? Treadmill. Title of the last book that you read? Aging Well. Boy, that's a terrible thing to be thinking that's what I'm reading now, but That's a good one. What food can you not live without? Bread. Basketball or football? Basketball. Boiler up. Best advice you ever received? If you're not early, you're late. Maybe you already gave the answer to this one. This last question, advice for a young person who wants to become a leader. I think it is the second piece that would go on with leadership of self is take your time. I have had such amazing opportunities, but it's been a lot of years. So you you get these opportunities over time. You don't have to do it all in one day. And when I will will leave this thought with a young person, when you see something that needs done, do it. That would be a statement that my chief of staff when I was lieutenant governor, Tanya Brothers Bridge, would say, if it needs done, go do it. And if you do that, you will almost always open doors to future jobs, careers, promotion. Great advice. Sue, thank you so much for joining me on the Indiana 250 podcast off the record. And thank you for your leadership at Ivy Tech and for all the work you've done before you you became president of Ivy Tech. You've been a great leader for our state. And thank you for all you've done. Well, this has been a pleasure. Thank you, Nate. Thanks to Ivy Tech Community College President Sue Elsperman for our conversation today. To learn more about other leaders on IBJ Media's Indiana 250 list, go to indiana250.com and look for a page two feature each week in IBJ. We'll be back with a new Indiana 250 off-the-record conversation soon. Mm -hmm.